Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Matty Friedman about his new book, Who by Fire? Leonard Cohen in the Sinai. Matty is a journalist and author of three previous award-winning works of nonfiction. He was born in Toronto and lives with his family in Jerusalem. Formerly, he worked as an Associated Press correspondent and essayist for the New York Times opinion section. Currently, he writes a monthly feature for Tablet Magazine. Matty Friedman, welcome to That Said. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to begin these interviews by asking our authors to tell us a bit about themselves. Where did they grow up? What was their education? How did they come to be where they are now? I was born and raised in Toronto and went to uh, uh, Hebrew schools as a young child and then public schools for junior high and high school. Moved to Israel when I was 17, thinking I'd be there for a year and um, spent a year milking cows and pretty early on in that year decided that I was not going back home and never did really. That was 27 years ago. So I've been in Israel since then. And after a time working in agriculture, I uh, got drafted, which happens here after high school and spent three years in the military and then went to university, studied Islamic studies, never quite finished because I got a journalism job uh, uh, in my final year of college that I thought was more interesting than <laughs> than university education. I worked for the Jerusalem Report for a couple of years and for the AP for a number of years, became a freelancer and uh, written a few books over the past decade. Uh, that's it. I live in Jerusalem. I have four kids. That's the short version of my CV. So did you go there to do Aliyah or did you just go there to study, to go to the kibbutz and, and then stick around? I initially intended it I initially intended to be there for one year. It was supposed to be a gap year between high school and university. And uh, just never, never happened. I was supposed to go to McGill in Montreal and then deferred admission. And I think they're still holding my dorm room from 1995. After a few weeks on this kibbutz, which is a small religious kibbutz in the north of Israel uh, called Ma'ale Gilboa, I just knew I was staying. And I did. And I've been here ever since. So why did you decide to write this book? The figure of Leonard Cohen looms very large if you're a Canadian, and particularly if you're a Canadian Jewish kid. We don't have that many you know, cultural giants uh, of an international scale like Leonard Cohen. So uh, you know, he was always on in the background, and it was really the music that my parents listened to. But of course, when you're a kid, you don't have much choice about what uh, the soundtrack is when you're in the car. So I heard a lot of Dylan and a lot of uh, Judy Collins and a lot of Leonard Cohen. And um, I guess it just must have seeped into my into my brain. The trigger for it really was when he showed up in Israel for a concert in 2009. And at this time, and you probably remember, he was um, kind of an elderly guy who'd had the most incredible last act maybe in music history where he disappeared for a number of years, he'd been in a Buddhist monastery kind of cut off from everything and uh, discovered that his bank account had been emptied out by a former manager. So he was forced to go back on the road. And when he did, you know, basically just because of circumstance, he discovered that he 
was beloved by you know hundreds of thousands of people around the world and he was filling stadiums in Europe and in the United States and it was just an absolutely incredible last chapter in the life of a of a performer and during that incredible resurrection tour where he's you know we all remember those of us who you know pay attention to Leonard Cohen remember this elderly gentleman with a fedora very elegant character uh, kind of dropping to his knees on stage uh, his you know 75 year old knees um, he showed up in Israel for the last concert of that tour and he came to Tel Aviv and Israelis went crazy to see Leonard Cohen. And I hadn't really understood that uh, Israelis venerate Leonard Cohen in a way that's pretty different from the way they treat any other foreign artist. And he's, even today, he's probably covered more than any other foreign artist in Hebrew. There are more Hebrew versions of Cohen songs and I can think of than any other foreign artist. And Israelis have a very special connection to him and they really see him in a very strange way as an Israeli artist. And even though he wasn't at all Israeli and I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And then I read an article in one of the Israeli papers, Yediot Achonot, which is an Israeli daily around the time of the concert that talked about this concert tour that he'd done in the middle of the Yom Kippur War, which is maybe the darkest moment in Israel's history. And he toured the front and the, the details were fuzzy and I couldn't quite figure out what exactly had happened, but it all, it struck me at the time that this was a story that someone had to look into. It seemed like a great moment in Jewish history and a great moment in rock history. And, uh, you know, it took me a couple of years, but the book came out two weeks ago. So tell us a bit about the writing process and your sources, because this was a pretty unknown trip that Cohen took in seminary to Israel. And there wasn't a lot of press and it wasn't like a Bob Hope USO tour with cameras rolling. So tell us about how you did your research and how you came to construct what occurred in those weeks that he was in uh, the Sinai and Suez. So the first thing that struck me about this story was that Leonard Cohen almost never mentioned it. And that was strange and maybe interesting because it seemed clear to me that this was a significant experience that a person as sensitive as Leonard Cohen inserting himself into a Middle Eastern war and clearly spending time at the front, not in a USO type situation where it's, you know, a base in the rear and um, kind of a Bob Hope type setup. It wasn't like that at all. And yet Cohen seemed almost never to have mentioned it. So that was a kind of a strange question mark at the center of the story. So instead of starting with Cohen, I started in Israel and I went to the archive of the Israeli military to see if anyone had a list of the concerts or if anyone could you know, find some documents relating to this tour. And there was nothing, nothing at all in the military archives. Officially, the tour never, never happened. So that made it frustrating as a journalist, but also more interesting because this was a kind of underground history. It was kind of a subterranean story that had to be put together by collecting people's memories and looking at people's photo albums and trying to piece it together in a completely different way. There wasn't going to be official sourcing on it. So I started looking for soldiers who'd seen Cohen. And Israel being a very small country where people tend to know each other, I would find one person's phone number and they would pass me on to another person. And you know, Shlomo would pass me on to Rina and Rina would pass me on to you know, Yigal, and that's how I made my way through a lot of the soldiers who happened to have heard these incredible concerts in Sinai. So I started to put together the story that way. Different soldiers who didn't know each other, different units, different times in the war, and the information started to build up. I found musicians who had traveled with Cohen in a kind of pickup band 
that, um, that toured with him. And it, there are four musicians who were with him who were some of the most prominent performers in Israel at the time. I interviewed two of them. One of them um, wouldn't speak. And the, and the fourth, unfortunately, was too ill and elderly to speak and, and, and died um, not long after um, I did the research. And the final part of the story was maybe the, the biggest breakthrough in the story was discovering that although Cohen had been publicly silent about the war afterwards, he had in fact written a pretty amazing 45-page manuscript about the war. And he wrote it immediately upon his return. He clearly sat down at his typewriter on the island of Hydra, where he was living at the time, a Greek island. And he just spilled out everything that had happened. It's unfiltered and unedited and ultimately unpublished. And it was obviously put in a box. Uh, I found it in Hamilton, Ontario, of all places, which is where Cohen's publisher keeps their archive. So this manuscript had been kind of gathering dust and it really gives you an incredible window onto how Cohen saw all these events. Armed with all of that information, I started to actually write the book. The title of the book is Who by Fire? And it's a sort of double entendre sort of title, which I'd like you to talk to us about. Because on the one hand, you've got the Unatana Tokaf prayer, which is that prayer that we recite between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And it's the prayer that talks about God's decision about who's going to live and who's going to die. And in that prayer, I'll read a little of it. It says, how many will pass on? How many will be created? Who will live and who will die? Who will reach the end of their days and who will not? Who by water and who by fire? And so there's the title of your book, Who by Fire, right in this most holy of prayers and the most holy of our holidays. But then you have at the same time, Cohen's famous song, essentially by the same name, Who by the Fire. And he starts it by saying, and who by fire and who by water. And then he sings at the end, and who shall I say is calling. So obviously you picked this title purposefully. So talk about it in relationship to both the prayer and the Cohen song, if you would, please. In Israel, the memory of the Yom Kippur War is kind of indelibly linked to the, mem- to, the, to the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And it's the most solemn day of the Jewish calendar. And in Israel, it's really a day when everyone shuts down and the country is completely silent and there are no radio broadcasts and no TV broadcasts and the streets are completely empty. And people fast for the most part, even people who are not religious most of the time. And you're supposed to kind of ponder your fate in the coming year. And that's what people are doing in synagogue. And that prayer, which loosely translates as, let us relate the power, because that's the first line of the, of the prayer, let us relate the, the power of this day. Um, that, that prayer is kind of the center of the Yom Kippur service. And it's a pretty wild text. It includes different sections, one of which talks about the transience of human life. You know, we're, we're dreams flitting in the night and we're, you know, just a passing shadow. It's actually quite beautiful, that section. It compares the, helplessness, the helplessness of humans to the kind of power of the deity. And then there's this section which not only says that God is going to decide who dies and, and who lives, but exactly how everyone is going to die. And then it spells it out in this incredibly graphic section, some of which you read, but it actually gets more graphic. It says, you know, who by, after the who by fire section, and who by water, which is pretty standard, then who by strangulation and who by earthquake and it gets who by wild beasts. 
it gets pretty pretty specific. It's a pretty strange text. It's medieval. We don't know exactly when it was written or by whom, but it was written in medieval times, you know, when Jewish communities faced incredible violence and when I guess many people faced incredible violence and that's reflected in the text. So that prayer was recited in synagogues not long before the sirens went off at 2 p.m. on Yom Kippur in 1973, October 6, 1973, which is when the Egyptian army and the Syrian army carry out surprise attacks on two fronts, completely catch Israel off guard and initiate the Yom Kippur War. So the, the day Yom Kippur and the war called Yom Kippur are, are linked. And Leonard Cohen inserts himself into this series of events and experiences it with, uh, with Israelis. It's, it, the events are so linked that we sometimes call the war the War of Atonement as if the war were a kind of atonement. Atonement for what? Good question. Maybe for the arrogance that afflicted Israel in the years leading up to the Yom Kippur War when the victory of 1967 kind of addled Israel's thinking and led people to believe that they were not threatened and made Israel let its guard down and left the army exposed to this surprise attack. So we sometimes call it the War of Atonement. And the war and the day and the prayer, these are all kind of wrapped up together. So Cohen uh, comes home from this war and in his notebook, you find the text of this song called Who by Fire. And the song is a riff on the prayer and it's kind of a very Cohen-esque riff. He starts with the traditional text, Who by Fire. And then he goes off into all kinds of modern ways you could die, who by barbiturate, for example. And then he ends with a kind of humorous line. And who shall I say is calling? That's a kind of joke. We kind of treat the text as a solemn uh, a solemn uh, text, but calling kind of joking there, you know, who by fire and who by water, and who, who shall I say is calling, which is of course what a secretary says when, you know, when answering the phone. And, and, and that's very, that's very Leonard Cohen. The, the connection, you know, between that Cohen song and between the prayer and between the war and between atonement and, you know, the idea of atonement and the, and the holiday, that's really the heart of this book. Tell us, let's just back up to do some foundational work before we dive a little bit more into the book. You mentioned it in passing, but tell us a little bit about who Leonard Cohen was. We know he was the grandson of a very famous rabbi in Canada, but tell us about him and his upbringing and take us perhaps to Hydra before he goes off to Israel. At the time of the war, Leonard Cohen is living on this island, Hydra, which is a Greek island which had a, a bohemian scene, and he'd been living there for a number of years. But he was there to escape what is, you know, unarguably Leonard Cohen's actual home, which is Montreal. And that's the place that we really need to understand if we're going to understand Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen grows up in a, a very important synagogue in Montreal called Shara Shemaim, which is one of the most important Jewish institutions in Canada. And, and he's from Montreal Jewish royalty. His family counts among its uh, members, founders of this synagogue. His grandfather was president of Shara Shamayim. His great-grandfather was president of Shara Shamayim. He lives in Westmount, which is a very upscale part of Montreal. So he's not from the immigrant Jewish scene of Montreal, which centers around a part called Outremont. He's from, from royalty. And he is a Cohen, which means that he's, he's a priest, right? In the Jewish tradition, we, we know which families are descended from the temple priests, even though the temple was destroyed in the year 70 CE, which is a long time ago. And being a Kohen in a Jewish community gives you a certain status. And the Kohens of Westmount had that, had that status. So he grows up steeped in Jewish tradition, steeped in Jewish texts. On one side, you know, 
kind of Montreal Jewish royalty, money, and on the other side, as you mentioned, a, a, a famous scholar uh, from Kovno, Lithuania, who was an expert in Hebrew grammar. So he really grows up, you know, in a deeply Jewish environment, which he never fully leaves, and I, you know, he never tries to hide it. He never changes his name, right? He keeps his name Leonard Cohen, and he's very much from Montreal, and it's kind of impossible to understand Leonard Cohen without understanding that the Jews in Montreal are a minority among the English speakers of Montreal, who are a minority among the French-speaking Catholics of Quebec, who are, are a minority among the English-speaking Protestants of Canada, who are a minority in North America because they're Canadian. And most, you know, most of America, most of North America is, is, is American. So being a Jew from Montreal is being a minority and a minority and a minority and a minority. And it makes you kind of hyper aware of who you are and what the boundaries are between you and other people. And that is also very key, in my opinion, to understanding Cohen. But when we meet Cohen in 73, he's gone. He's left all of that behind him. You know, he's gone off to look for sunshine and, and poetry and, you know, many other things on this Greek this Greek island called Hydra, where he lives in a little white house with a woman named Suzanne, who's not the Suzanne of the song Suzanne, but a different Suzanne, with whom he has a long relationship and, and ultimately two children. At the time of the war, he has one child who's one year old. Cohen is 39, he's a new father, and he is at a moment of crisis. Talking about his relationship with Judaism, so he becomes a bar mitzvah, at this very famous temple, which is known in American as the Gate of Heaven, right? It's the most northern part of Canada and famous as such. But we see, fast-forwarding a bit to 1964, and he's given a speech then where he essentially calls a Jewish life as an edifice of a hollow perversion of its divine mission. So, I mean, he's really become anti, I wouldn't say anti-Semitic, but anti-Judaism. So can you talk about that? Because it's so interesting how from 64, he flips into 73. I think that, I think there's a direct line between 64 and 73 and not a flip because Cohen is never anti-Judaism. In fact, I think he reveres the heart of the Jewish tradition all of his life. He just thinks that the heart of Jewish tradition is prophecy. So the Jews have a mission, which is to receive divine transmissions and communicate them and all this other stuff you know is is a waste of time you know communal life paying dues electing the president you know all the you know noise of organized jewish life struck him as being missing the point which is what he says in that in that quote and he has some great lines from that speech where he's speaking to the community of montreal shortly before he leaves forever and goes off to seek his fortune in greenwich village and london and other places and he, he says you know, we're, we once had, he, it's, the language he uses is beautiful. He said, he says, once we had a vertical seizure, by which he means the revelation at Mount Sinai. We, we were looking up and God was speaking to us and, and we knew how to receive those, those messages. And now he says, look at us, we're all horizontalists. We're not vertical anymore. We just look at each other and we're involved with each other. And he says, there are no good Jewish no novelists anymore. They're just sociologists. And we're we're not producing anything, you know, worth, worth much. And we're, we're knocking on our own doors, he says, and we're surprised that no one answers. And it's an indictment, not of Judaism, but of the hollowness that he perceived in Jewish communal life in North America, you know, and, um, 
maybe an overemphasis on on class and um, and on the comforts of of life, which I think is quite understandable for you know first generation immigrants. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't what Leonard Cohen was looking for. He was looking for raw spirituality, and he wasn't finding it at this synagogue in Montreal. And that's what he's saying in in the speech. And when he arrives. In, in Israel in 73, I think it's very much the same, the same Cohen, deeply connected to, to Jewish things and deeply connected to the Jewish people. And of course, connected enough to Israel to show up in the middle of a war and try to help out. But, but a critic of, of what most Jewish life in North America had become. It's interesting, though, he flees Montreal. He says of himself, he essentially was running away from things for much of his life. As you say, he goes to Hydra. He lives with a woman named Marianne, who becomes famous with that's no way to say goodbye. And the other solo Marianne, Sarah Marianne songs, which when you understand the context, that he's, you know, leaving her for another Suzanne. The first Suzanne was a woman he met in Canada. And uh, so now it's ironic that he ends up with a second Suzanne, but he's living there. And you write of him that he's in the grip of anger and depression. He's trying to lose himself with women and drugs. He's a hard person to love. He has announced at this point that he's got nothing more to say. That he, I think he says to himself that it's time for him to shut up, right? So talk about that a bit. So the Leonard Cohen that we remember from the end of his life, which is the Leonard Cohen that I remember most sharply is because of my age. I was born in 1977, so I kind of missed the first iteration of Leonard Cohen. But I remember this elegant gentleman, you know, kind of a messenger from a more, uh, from a classier time and um, a guy who seemed reconciled to himself and kind and grateful for the people showing up to hear him sing. The Leonard Cohen I met when I dove into the material from 73 is a completely different guy. He's 39 and he's angry and he's stuck in his personal life and stuck in his career. And he uh, is, as I said, you know, as you as you quote, he's trying to lose himself in various, you know, fairly obvious ways uh, with women and with drugs. And, 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 and the way he relates to women is not how not anything we'd put up with these days. So he's he's a hard character to love and I was kind of surprised to, to encounter him and ultimately I was grateful to have encountered him because I think he's a much more interesting character you know he hasn't worked through his anger yet he, he's a young man and he's uh, fighting all kinds of demons and that's the Leonard Cohen who comes to Israel and in fact I think he comes to the war in in some part because he's he sees Israel's crisis as a way out of his own crisis so it's not, you know, completely altruistic. He needs to get out. He needs to find a way out of this island where he feels stranded and a way to sing again because he thinks he can't sing anymore. He thinks he's finished. At 39, he thinks he's washed up. And I guess it's worth pointing out that most rock stars are washed up by 39. You know, most rock stars don't make it to 39 and certainly don't pass 39. So it wouldn't have been a shock if Leonard Cohen hadn't made it past 39, but he didn't, he didn't want to give up. And he thought, and he writes this in this amazing manuscript that I found, he, he, he thinks Israel is a place where he can sing again, a place where he might be able to be born again. And that seems ridiculous, but it actually seems to have happened. He called Israel his myth home. What did he mean by that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if Leonard Cohen really knew, but I think that 
that is a fascinating phrase. And I think it's something that many Jewish people can identify with, even if we can't quite explain what it means. And I don't think that refers only to the state of Israel that has existed since 1948, but to the land of Israel throughout Jewish history, most of which has played out in the diaspora. So people have been living in all kinds of places, whether it was Warsaw or Casablanca or Damascus or Vienna or Washington, D.C. or Toronto. And, and uh, they were living there, but they had this idea that their home was somewhere else. And the holidays were celebrated according to the agricultural calendar of this other country. And, and there are many other links to this land, which the Jews have always believed is their home to which they would eventually return. So this idea of a myth home is very, is very interesting. And I think it, it's one thing that makes you know, it kind of illustrates this very powerful connection people have with Israel, but it also says something important about the connection, which is that it is a, a, a mythical connection, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the real place as it exists in real life. And coming to Israel can be a bit jarring, and I think it was for Cohen. So he sees it as his myth home, and then lands there and has this wild and kind of upsetting experience in a place that, after all, is not a myth. It's a real place on planet Earth, and that tension between the myth home and the real place is, of course, not just a problem for Leonard Cohen, but it's a, you know, an issue in the lives of Jewish people all over the world to this day. Well, let's talk about this for one minute, and then we're going to get to Cohen in Israel. But you write of the Yom Kippur War, and maybe you can give us like a few sentences on it for those who aren't fully aware of it. But you write of the war that when the battles ended, the country became less confident less united, more introspective. After the war, this was in many ways a different country. The victory at the end of the month felt like defeat. The war discredited the old political leadership and the communal we and ushered in a more individualistic culture. So let's talk a little bit about the Israel that is in this transformative state in October 73 and, and right afterwards. And then we'll get to Cohen's arrival. Cohen arrives at a moment of really dramatic change in Israel. The Yom Kippur War is really a fault line in Israel's history. There's before Yom Kippur and, and after Yom Kippur. And in many ways, it's a different, it's a different country because uh, the Yom Kippur War catches Israel at a moment of, of euphoria after the Six-Day War, which had been this incredible military victory against great odds, against three armies, uh, the Egyptian army, the Syrian army, and the Jordanian army fighting with other Arab armies. There were Iraqis involved in Saudis. So it was a major, a major victory, and it seemed to vindicate the founding generation of Israel and, and the Zionism of the founders, the kibbutz idea. The generals were heroes. People like Moshe Dayan were kind of celebrities. And there was a moment in, in Israel where people were kind of in love with the country and in love with the army and in love with themselves. And that all comes crashing down on October 6, 1973, when everyone is caught off guard by this quite skillfully handled surprise attack by the Egyptians and the Syrians. And within a few weeks, Israel has lost 2,600 fatalities, which is an incredible number for a really small country of barely 3 million people at the time. And that's just fatalities. There are you know, many, many thousands of, of casualties. And the country is just shocked. And no one understands how this could have happened, how we could have been so complacent, how we missed the signs of an impending invasion, how the army messed up, how the political leadership um, failed the country. And um, within a few years, the labor government, which had always been in power, these were the founders of the state, the labor Zionists who you know, set up Israel, people like Golda Meir and Ben Gurion. And those people were out of power a few years after the war and the Likud came to power in 1977. So it discredits the founding generation and it really changes the way the country sees itself. It changes 
the communal nature of Israel and, and sets it on a more individualistic path. Uh, the kibbutz movement, which had really been at the center of Israel's image of itself, fades after 73. The, the Jews who came to Israel from the Arab world, from the Islamic world, but who'd always kind of been kept in the basement, even though there were the majority of Jews in Israel up to that time, they become more assertive in their own identity and in their own culture, and they take a, take, they play a, a, a bigger and more important role after 73. So it's a, a less confident place after 73, a more, maybe a more democratic place, but a more fractured and kind of divided and chaotic country than it was before, before that war. And to this day, we're still living in post-73 Israel. And it's at, that, it's at precisely that moment that Cohen shows up. Right. And he writes in this journal that you found that he was listening to the war and that he wanted to go and fight and die because he was profoundly unhappy with his life. He wrote that he was living inside of hatred and keeping to his side of the bed and was always screaming in his head, no, this can't be my life. I listened to the news every hour. I couldn't move. I asked, where was our miracle? And so that's where he is. He's lying on his side of the bed, screaming in his in his own head, this can't be my life. Yeah. And he picks up and he goes to Israel. And tell us why. why? I mean, because he didn't even travel there with a guitar. He just picked up one, one morning and shows up in Tel Aviv the next. That's right. It's pretty clear. And this surprised me when I was doing my research. It's pretty clear that he had no intention of playing for soldiers. He's a bit cagey about exactly what he planned to do. And this manuscript isn't exactly a journal and it seems largely factual, but he doesn't, you know, commit himself to journalism or to, uh, you know, a solid history. That's not Leonard Cohen's job, but it seems to be largely factual. And, and in his account, he doesn't tell us exactly what he meant to do, but he shows up without a guitar and he had already announced that he was retiring. So it seems quite clear that he didn't come as Leonard Cohen, the performer. He came as Leonard Cohen, you know, the pilgrim, Leonard Cohen, the Jew, uh, Leonard Cohen, he needed to get out of you know, the life that he was living. And I don't think he really had a plan. He told people who we met in Israel that he wanted to work on a kibbutz, which was something that volunteers sometimes did. Volunteers from North America would replace the men who'd been called up to fight. And that had happened in the Six-Day War six years earlier. So it makes sense that that might have been somewhere in his head. But he's sitting in a cafe in Tel Aviv, I think, not quite sure how to proceed when he meets a group of Israeli performers who happen to be in the same cafe. And they walk over to his table and kind of change the course of his visit. So he's at the Cafe Pinotti. If I recall my research correctly, there are like two sort of avant-garde, bohemian-ish cafes in Tel Aviv. And if you wanted to meet that set, you went to one or the other. So he's sitting there in the Cafe Pinotti, trying to figure out what he's going to do, minding his own business, drinking a coffee. And there are some other musicians at another table. And one whispers to the other says, that's Leonard Cohen over there. And the other one says, absolutely not. There's no way Leonard Cohen is here in Tel Aviv. Because remember the year before, maybe you could talk about this. In 72, he had a very odd concert in Israel. So maybe we can talk about 72 and why these other musicians sitting in this Cafe Pinote would think there's no way in the world Leonard Cohen is back in Israel. He'd been in Israel a year before and 
it's kind of important to understand to understand the 73 visit. In 72, he gave two concerts in Israel at the end of an international tour. It was a very strange and in some ways unsuccessful tour, at least so he felt. And there was a, a tour documentary shot actually of that tour. It's called Bird on a Wire and you can find it. And it shows concerts that don't really work and the, the sound equipment fails and Cohen fights <laughs> at points with the audience. and. Um, and Cohen had felt that the tour hadn't gone well. This was part of his kind of uh, uh, part of a down moment in his career that that persists to 1973. And it might have just been in his head. I'm not sure that his career was actually fading, but he certainly felt felt that it was. And he gave two concerts in Israel, both of which are very strange, each for their own reason. There's a concert in Tel Aviv that ends with a riot when the crowd starts fighting with security guards who are trying to keep them away from the stage and Cohen tries to intervene. And you see it in the documentary and he ultimately leaves the stage in the middle of the concert and you get this impression of a chaotic country that is not in control of itself. It seems just like chaos and, and Cohen and the band are they're quite rattled and they leave the stage. And then they play Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, it's Cohen who almost botches the concert he um, uh, loses the thread. He kind of loses his focus in the middle of the concert. According to the tour documentary, in the documentary, you see him taking acid right before the show. So that might've been part of it, but he loses, he, he, loses, he loses the thread and starts going off on a tangent. He starts explaining to the people in the auditorium why he can't sing. And he says that, it says in the Kabbalah that unless the male and female sides of you are facing each other, God cannot sit on his throne. And, you know, the vibe just isn't happening. That's what he means. It's just not working. And he apologizes and everyone will get their money back and he has to go and he walks off stage and the, the crowd, instead of rioting or, you know, leaving, which you might expect, they start singing him this song, which is a song that every Jewish kid knows from day school or summer camp. It's Hevenu Shalom Alechem. Hevenu Shalom Alechem. Hevenu Shalom Alechem. Everyone knows it. And I think the crowd just assumed that Cohen, whose name was, of course, Cohen, would know this song and that this would somehow be a connection to him. And he's in his dressing room offstage trying to calm himself down and he hears the song and they sing it for five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. And he goes back on stage and he comes out and you see him in the, in the film just kind of beaming out at the audience, staring out at them like he can't believe that this is happening. And and he gets his juice back and he, he plays So Long, Marianne, and he... Uh, gives an incredible concert that ends with everyone crying. The audience is crying and Cohen's crying and the band is crying. And it's this incredible emotional peak. So for Cohen, Israel is not a regular place. It's a place where he has trouble functioning or a place where he reaches incredible emotional heights, but it's not just a regular gig. It's not like playing in Pittsburgh or in, uh, you know, or, or, in, or in New York. There's something spiritual about the, about the place that makes it that makes it maybe hard for him to focus but also suggests that it's a place where he can really kind of reach new heights in his performance and and that's what he comes back with in 73 so he comes back to a country that's not entirely foreign to him in fact he, he has some kind of deep but very weird connection with the Israeli audience but Israelis know who he is and in part that's because he performed here the year before so when he's spotted in the cafe these other musicians say you know that's Leonard Cohen Let's get him to come with us as we go to perform for troops on the front lines. And they go over and they say, come join us. And he does. And they say, well, you know, this is what we're going to do. Do you want to come? And he says, I don't have a guitar. And they say, you know, we can do a workaround around that. But he also, it's interesting, he, he seemed to be concerned that his sort of melancholy 
music would not be the type that the soldiers on the front would want to hear. You have a great quote in the book. He says, in describing a pessimist, he says, a pessimist is someone who is waiting for the rain. Me, I'm already wet. I don't wait for the rain to fall. We are in the catastrophe. It's such a great Cohen quote. Of course, he's got, you know, dozens of, of, of one-liners that you, um, you know, that no one else could say except Leonard Cohen. So that's, that's one of them. And I think that that disposition made him kind of suited for the, for the war because the war is a catastrophe and, he, and he's there and he knows what a catastrophe is. And he, um, you know, he's not there playing happy, upbeat music to cheer people up. People joked at the time that Leonard Cohen went off to the, to the front to depress the troops. Like anyone who knows Leonard Cohen's music knows that it's not necessarily an upper and people used to call him the Prince of Bummers. And that was unjust. I don't think that really accurately describes Leonard Cohen, but his music, you know, is sometimes melancholy and, and that happened to suit the atmosphere of the war. And I think that's one reason that people responded so strongly to the music because it, it was serious music for a serious moment. And interestingly, he joins this troupe. And as we said earlier, this is not a Bob Hope USO tour where they go to a, an Air Force base, they have a stage and lights and they do their show and then whisk off um, someplace else. He is literally driving around in jeeps and performing as close to the front lines really as you can get in he's seated in jeeps he's seated in backhoes and other land moving equipment singing with his guitar but the tour is very very raw and that's not a surprise if you know israel and the israeli military which is quite disorganized and um, and chaotic certainly in the middle of a war and no one was keeping track of the artists. It seems clear that it was just kind of these performers in Jeeps roving the front. And proof of that is the, the fact that Leonard Cohen manages somehow to cross the Suez Canal a day or two behind the Israeli military, which has just carried out the counterattack, which is kind of the, the turning point of the war. And Leonard Cohen is, is there. And it seems crazy that anyone would let an international artist of Leonard Cohen's stature anywhere near the Suez Canal, which was quite dangerous. And in fact, another performer who performs either the same day or a day, you know, right around the same time as Cohen, uh, they get dive bombed by an Egyptian jet. But the war is still going on and the performers are, are there. And, and part of that is just the chaos of, of this tour where they were just in Jeeps and they were driving in the desert. And, and another performer who was with Cohen described it to me. He said, we would drive, you know, in the dark, in a jeep and we would see some artillery pieces parked next to the road and we would stop and we would ask the soldiers if they wanted to hear any music and if they said yes then we would you know get out of the jeep and we would set up a stage made of ammunition crates and we would stand on the crates and we'd use the jeep's headlights as spotlights and and Leonard Cohen would you know stand on the crates and, and play his music for the soldiers and you know they'd play a few songs and get back in the jeep and keep going it was really like that yeah and in fact I think the dive bomb story that you just told was it not so that when the Egyptian dive bomber came, Ariel Sharon puts himself on top of this Israeli performer to protect her from the dive bomb? Because there is Sharon. I mean, he's standing next to Lenny Cohen and this other Israeli singer, and the dive bomber comes and Sharon says, you know, I'm going to protect you. So there's an incredible photograph, maybe the most famous photograph from this tour is a photograph where you see Leonard Cohen standing next to Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon, of course, is this general who's very, you know, kind of revered and also hated in Israel and kind of a controversial 
uh, figure to say the least, ultimately the prime minister of Israel. And uh, it's hard to think of two greater opposites or two greater kind of uh, Jewish opposites or Jewish archetypes than Leonard Cohen, the poet, and Ariel Sharon, the man of, of force. And, and seeing them together in, in one photograph, in my opinion, it's one of the great Jewish moments of the 20th century. It's just such a strange you know, meeting of two, of two characters and, and they do meet. And uh, there are artists coming to Sharon's headquarters on the other side of the Suez Canal. One of them is this Israeli singer named Yafa Yarkoni who gets dive-bombed. And another one is Leonard Cohen, uh, maybe the same day, who, who performs for, for troops. And we have some incredible photographs, some of which I publish in the book of that concert, which gives you a flavor of these concerts where it's just Cohen on one knee on the sand with a guitar surrounded by soldiers just standing there. There are no seats, there's no auditorium, there's no, you know, there's no crew, there are no groupies, no one's selling tickets, no one's selling records. And that's what makes these concerts so incredible. It's, it's a pure artistic transmission, you know, it's changing hands. And I think that, that that aspect of it, the fact that music here was a matter of life and death. And Cohen knows that he's playing music for people who might be you know, dead the next day. This might be the last thing they hear and, and that, that incredible energy, I think, is, is part of what brings him back to life and renews his faith in his, in his art. That's conjecture because Leonard Cohen will never say anything like that. He'll never make it easy for us by, by spelling it out. But, um, but I do think that's part of what happened. Yeah, you write in the book that the stakes were high. Everyone realized that something important, very important, was happening. And also everyone understood that his music that night might be the very last thing they heard because possible death waited for them at the end of the concert. That was very much the, the nature of these concerts. And that's what makes this an incredible moment in, in music. It's, you know, it's rare that you get an artist performing in circumstances like that. And if you add to that, the fact that Leonard Cohen is an artist who's steeped in the language of the Hebrew Bible. So his songs are full of biblical allusions and, names like Egypt and Babylon and, um, and you know, and Israel. And he, his poetry is just, is just kind of impossible to understand without understanding the Bible. And here he is playing in Sinai. I mean, he's a few dozen miles from Mount Sinai, the site of the revelation, which is at the heart of the Hebrew Bible. So, you know, all of that put together makes this an incredibly potent moment and a really unique moment in, in rock history. It's hard to think of another one that really compares. It's interesting, you write about how when Cohen was a younger artist, one of the things he used to do was play in mental asylums. He used to play for the mental asylum, I'll call them incarcerated, but I guess most of them were there by voluntary presence. And he said that that was good preparation for him. There was some connection between Leonard Cohen and, and the audiences at the at the mental hospitals where he where he played, and and he explained it once. He said that these people have experienced a kind of surrender. People who have kind of signed over their their selves to an institution have, have already experienced the kind of surrender that I, you know, have experienced and that that I understand. And and he thinks that these people are in many ways more advanced than people who are out of the mental institutions. And there's there's a, a kind of an electric connection that's formed between Cohen and the people at these concerts. And there are incredible descriptions of those concerts in a great biography of Cohen called I'm the Man by a music journalist named Sylvie Simmons, which I highly, I highly recommend. And the, the concerts happened not long before the Yom Kippur War. And I think in many ways they were 
maybe if not preparation for the war concerts, then, then very similar because the audiences are not that different. Soldiers are not all that different, you know, from people incarcerated or people, you know, kept in, a, in an institution. You can't leave the war. Things happen in wars that are insane, right? And as Joseph Heller pointed out, you know, if you understand that they're insane, that means you're sane, you know, that's catch-22. And, and, you know, some of these soldiers will be mental patients later on. So they're not, you know, those two experiences, in my opinion, are not completely unrelated. Yeah, you have to rent the movie King of Hearts, which is the wonderful 1966, I think, movie of the soldiers showing up in a town that the Germans had occupied, but they had fled and they left the mental institution unguarded and the mental patients were now running the town apropos of what Cohen felt about the world. Interesting, though, even though Cohen felt that maybe his music, his melancholy music, might not be what the soldiers wanted, you said in the book that he used to sing Suzanne all the time. That was like the first song he sang. That was probably his most famous, well-known song. And he would introduce the song by saying, this song is one that should be heard at home in a warm room with a drink, and a person you love. And I hope you all find yourselves in that situation soon. A lot of empathy there. I think the soldiers sensed that Cohen empathized with them. And that was part of the success of, the, of, of, the, of these concerts, which were, I think, complicated by the fact that Cohen wasn't Israeli and didn't speak modern Hebrew. So he couldn't really communicate with, with Israeli soldiers unless they spoke English, which most of them didn't. So you have this kind of communication that must have been, for many of the people there, non, non-verbal. There was something about Cohen's performance, something about the empathy that he broadcast that led the soldiers to understand that this guy was really with them and he was with them in an authentic way. There was nothing exploitative about the tour. There was no film crew. We have no video of any of these concerts. It wasn't like he was accompanied by you know, news crews and that he was trying to use this you know, for his own image. He was alone. He came by himself and he was sleeping on the ground like the soldiers, he was wearing a, a version of a uniform like that of the soldiers. He was eating combat rations like the soldiers, and he was clearly there for reasons completely unrelated to, you know, advancing his own career. And people sensed that. I think they, that was the key to the success of the tour, which would have been completely different if people had had received the kind of inauthentic vibe. But he was he was really there, and he was there with them, and he was there for them. And the soldiers sensed that, and many of them never forgot it. Which poet is it that said that you don't really need to understand the words that the, the sort of the vibe of it is comes first? Remind yeah, me of that. Yeah, yes. has, a, has a great line where he says that poetry can communicate before it's understood. And I think that that's true of poetry. That's good. And, and certainly um, it's true of much of Cohen's poetry. And there was something about his presence and about his performance and about the way he he, he presented these songs to the soldiers that that um, struck a chord even for people who didn't necessarily understand you know what tea and oranges all the way from China <laughs> meant or you know didn't know who Marianne was or you know what a bird was doing on a wire there was something about the whole situation that resonated while he's there you learn from reading the notebooks after the fact that he is beginning the origins of his wonderful song, Lover, Lover, Lover. And so can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe, Maddie, the two 
verses in the song that I'd like you to focus on. One is the first one about asking the father to change his name. And then a later verse, which reads, and may the spirit of this song, may it rise up pure and free. May it shield you a shield against the enemy. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about each of those and, and the creation of lover, lover, lover. Lover, Lover, Lover is a great song. It's not as famous as Hallelujah, of course, which has kind of overshadowed many of Cohen's other songs, but it's a, it's a song that Cohen clearly loved and played until the end of his career, which was a very long career that lasted until he was 80. So um, it's, a, you know, it's kind of a Cohen classic and it opens with that line. It's a strange song. It's hard to understand. You'd think it would be a love song because it's called Lover, 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 but the songs, the, the, the words of the song don't really support the idea that it's, that it's a love song. It sounds like a different kind of song. And it turns out to have been written at an Israeli Air Force base in the Yom Kippur War uh, between two concerts for air crews that were being shredded by anti-aircraft missiles over the Golan Heights and over the Suez Canal. And it was the worst week in the history of the Israeli Air Force and losses were so high that they were being hidden from the public. And Cohen's playing for these people and it's you know a charged situation. And he understands it. And between these two concerts at this one base called Hatzor, which is not far from Tel Aviv, it's in the center of Israel, he writes the song in his notebook. And I've seen the notebook. And it's quite something if you're a Cohen fan to see the songs being born in Cohen's handwriting. And, you know, first draft, it's not exactly like the song as we know it, but it's, it's pretty, pretty close. And he opens with this line. He says, I said, Father, Father, change my name. And that line is so interesting if we understand when it was when it was written, so he's speaking to Israelis, of course, many of whom had changed their names, right? Because one of the one of the aspects of Israeliness and of Zionism was that we shed the identities of the diaspora and we become new Jews. And everyone, or many people, had changed their name from diaspora names. For example, uh, David Grun of you know of Poland changed his name to David Ben Gurion and became one of the founders of Israel. Golda, Me Golda Meir was the Prime Minister of the, at the time had been Golda Meyerson, and there are many other examples of people who changed their names to kind of strong-sounding Hebrew names. And Cohen's facing an audience of these of these people, and it wasn't just Israelis who were changing their name at the time. Of course, it was you know performers like Kirk Kirk Douglas, whose real name is Isser Danilovich. At least that was his birth name, and and most famously Bob Dylan, who was born Robert Zimmerman, and and Leonard Cohen never changed his name, which is one of the most interesting aspects, I think, of, of Cohen and maybe one of the most important character traits of Leonard Cohen, which is that he has this incredibly unfashionable name, which must have made his life much harder than it needed to be. And yet he will not change it because he is faithful to who he is and, and where he's from, which is Westmount, Montreal. He's from this place, Montreal. He's a Jew from Montreal. And he never obscures that, that fact. So that line really gets at all of that, I think. You know, I said, Father, change my name. And that's how he opens the song. And then he, he, he goes on and on and, and, and sings this verse, which is very weird, unless you understand for whom the song was written. He says, may the spirit of the song, may it rise up pure and free. May it be a shield for you, a shield against the enemy, which is, again, not doesn't sound like the words of a love song. It sounds more like a war song. And what he's, what he's doing in that verse is, you know, kind of giving these, giving these soldiers a, you know, kind of a, a protective incantation almost. He, he thinks that somehow hearing the song will protect them, or at least he hopes it will. And it's a strange 
idea, but uh, Cohen seems to have believed it. And not only does he write it into the lyrics of the song, he mentions it in his manuscript a few times. He says, maybe this song can protect some people. Maybe it can help these people. And it's a very interesting idea that kind of threaded, it's, it's threaded through Cohen's experience in the world. But it's also interestingly, I mean, if you want to take a, a leap of faith in some sense, it is also Cohen being a Kohan, right? Very much so. I think that's really, that's the explanation in my opinion, which is that Leonard Cohen is not only a Jew, he's a Cohen, which means that he's a priest. And a, a priest in Judaism has nothing to do with being a priest in, in Catholicism. There's no uh, intermediary in Judaism between the congregation and God. You don't need a member of the clergy to run prayer or to um, you know, run messages between you and um, and divine power. So a priest in Judaism is really um, a remnant of something that existed 2000 years ago in the temple when the priestly class was in charge of sacrifice and running the temple. And of course, we don't do sacrifices anymore and we don't have a temple anymore, but we still know who has priestly lineage. And these people are often named Cohen. And Leonard Cohen came from a family of priests. And one of the jobs, the main job of priests in our times is to recite an, a blessing called the priestly blessing, or in Hebrew, which is 15 words. And it starts, may God bless and protect you. And the job of the priests is to call down divine protection on the congregation. So if you're a kid like Leonard Cohen, who grew up being taught that he was a priest, and Cohen says elsewhere that he did not believe that that was extraneous information. He thought it was important that he was a, a priest. And he's taught this as a kid growing up. He's taught that his words have the power protect people and that that's his job so you know it might not be that much of a gap between may god bless and protect you which is you know the, the words of the priestly blessing which are at least 2500 years old and the words may this song be a shield for you which is you know lover 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 released in 1974 i think there's a pretty clear connection between those lines now in the notebook you spend some time talking about the eight lines that appear under the title airbase and perhaps I, I can read them to you or perhaps you can have a memorized but can you tell us about the controversy around these last lines starting with i went down to the desert one of the amazing things about lover 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 beyond what we've already discussed is that there's a missing verse of the song i discovered this because i met soldiers who were struck by this one verse of lover lover where cohen called them his brothers and of course, that stood out for Israelis more than the other verses, because you know, Israelis, and I'm speaking as, as, as an Israeli, we want to know if you're on our side or not. People want to know, are you, are you with us or are you, you know, are you against us? And people wanted to know that about Cohen. Are you just passing through here? Are you an observer or are you really with us? And Cohen, who, by the way, was calling himself Eliezer Cohen at the time when he was in Israel. He was using his Hebrew name, which is, I think... You know, uh, again, not an extraneous detail. I think he was he was trying to be part of what was going on. He really felt a deep connection and wanted people to call him a local name, Eliezer Cohen, which is a very common name in Israel, by the way. It's kind of like Joe Smith for Americans. So he he called the soldiers his brothers in this in this song, and and that's quite striking. And uh, I, I met uh, I met more than one person who told me this story. And the problem is that there isn't. A verse in Lover, Lover, Lover that actually says that. 
So I thought that the story was wrong, that people were, were mistaken and, you know, people's memories play tricks on them all the time. Certainly memories of war are particularly tricky. And I just assumed that this was some kind of misplaced memory. Maybe Cohen had introduced the song in that way and, and, and the memories had, had become mixed up, but then I actually found the verse. And I found the verse because I had the incredible privilege of spending time with Cohen's notebooks, which are kept by the Cohen family estate in Los Angeles. And they were very generous with uh, access and allowed me to sit with these Cohen notebooks that he kept during the war. And in the notebook, the same notebook where you have the first draft of Lover, 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 you have this verse and I can read it to you. It goes like this. I went down to the desert to help my brothers fight. I knew that they weren't wrong. I knew that they weren't right, but bones must stand up straight and walk and blood must move around and men go making ugly lines across the holy ground. That's quite a striking verse, especially because Cohen almost never talked about the war after that and certainly never expressed that kind of identification for the Israeli side in the war. And here he was calling the soldiers his brothers and saying that he'd come to help them fight. I mean, that's quite an amazing statement. But it's quite clear that Cohen steps back from that statement pretty, pretty quickly. And you see in the notebook that he erased the words, help my brothers fight. So he really crossed them out. And you can just see it in the notebook. There's a line through those words. And instead he writes, I went down to the desert to watch the children fight. So now it's not his brothers and he's not helping. Now he's more of an observer. Uh, he's standing from afar and he's watching from afar. And, um, and when the song comes out a few months later, the verse is completely gone and there's no trace of it. And it resurfaces only now in my book. It's sort of the dichotomy between Cohen the man and Cohen the poet artist, right? When he releases it as Cohen, the poet artist, he has a different aperture than when he was on the ground as Cohen, the man, it seems. I think that's absolutely true. I think that's, that's the key to understanding that he was here as Cohen, the man, who is of course a Jew from Montreal and feels a deep connection, whatever his complicated emotions about, about Israel and its politics. And he had many complicated emotions and uh, and put them in writing uh, later on, but he, he was deeply connected and he was calling himself Eliezer Cohen and he didn't have to show up to help in a war. And most Jewish performers, of course, didn't show up to help the Israelis in the war and he did. So there's that. But then there's Cohen, the universal artist who, whose subject is not the Yom Kippur War. Right? He's not a lowly journalist like me. He's not reporting from a war and he's not Israeli and his, he's a universal poet whose subject is the human condition and the soul. And, and that mission would be complicated by, by um, a tribal allegiance that, um, you know, that, that's attached to one side in a war. I think if you ask Cohen who his enemy was in the Yom Kippur War, he would never say the Egyptians. He would say that his enemy was inhumanity or that his enemy was the war. And, and that's very much the Cohen that releases the song, Lover, 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 in its final form in the spring of 1974, so a few months after the Yom Kippur War. When it comes out, it's a bit of a different song. And I think you're right that maybe a different person wrote the song and released the song, the different sides of Cohen. Cohen comes back from the war, a, a changed man. You have a lot of wonderful quotes. He says of war that it's one of the few times that people can act their best. Everyone is responsible for his brother, the sense of community and kinship and brotherhood and devotion. There are opportunities to feel things that you cannot feel in modern city 
life. It's some kind of miracle. And so he says after that, that after this war, which he said had a big effect on him, he was going to return to Hydra and he was going to tend to his little garden. And it may not be the garden that he wanted exactly. It wasn't the flowers that he was necessarily intending to plant, but he's going to do the best that he can do. That quote is quite a, quite an amazing one because, as I mentioned, Cohen almost never mentions the war afterwards. So he gives an amazing interview immediately after the war, which is where we get that great quote where he says that war is, you know, a situation that allows people to act in a way that they would never act anywhere else. And he says every every movement is is necessary. Nothing, no one's goofing off. So he really relates to that part of war and he's got a quite quite an incredible description of war in that interview, but then he never talks about it again and certainly never makes clear how the war affected him. And even people who knew Cohen quite well, and I spoke to a few of Cohen's close friends, they never heard about the Yom Kippur War from him. He seems really not to have spoken about it. But he did give a quote to Sylvie Simmons, his biographer, and with whom I um, had the pleasure of corresponding when I was writing this book. And and I asked her about this, if, if she'd heard anything from him about the war, and she gave me that quote, which which isn't in her biography. And it's a, it's a quite an amazing quote. If um, if your subject is the Yom Kippur War, because there, already as an elderly guy, Leonard Cohen spells out the impact that the war had on his life. And he says that the war kind of exposed him to something awful about the world and made him want to go back and tend his garden. And indeed he does. He goes back to Hydra and, and for a while at least does his best to... You know, tend to his family, and he and Suzanne have another child. Uh, it's not exactly nine months after the war, but it's something like that. Um, and her name's Borka. That's his, his second child, a daughter. And he does his best for a while, and it's kind of in the shadow of, of the war. After the war, and he returns to Hydra to tend to his little garden, the original flowers there or not, he writes some of his most Remarkable songs, not as well known as, hey, that's no way to say goodbye or goodbye, Marianne. But can you talk a little bit about Night Comes On and You Want It Darker? Because those, to me, are real clear pictures into the soul, the new soul, if you will, or the old soul resurrected of Leonard Cohen. I agree. The first of those, Night Comes On, is really a, an autobiographical song, and he presents chapters from his own life, which seem to be the chapters that are maybe most important to him. He talks about his mother's grave and the birth of his children and unhappy marriage, and it's it's a very personal song. It's quite a wonderful song, and in that quite short list of very important personal chapters, we meet the war all of a sudden after a long time where Cohen hasn't mentioned it. He says, we were fighting in Egypt when they signed an agreement that nobody else had to die. And he goes on. So what we learn from that is that Cohen includes the Yom Kippur War in a very short list of the most important events in his personal life. That's what I take from that song, which is quite an incredible comment. And I think true once we kind of get to the heart of, of the matter. The, the second song that you, that you mentioned you Want It Darker is really Cohen's farewell song. It, he might not have intended it to be his farewell song, but it comes out just a few months before he died in, in 2016. And it's, it's quite a dark song, as you'd expect from the title. But there's a very interesting twist in the song, which is that you hear a male voice 
in the song that isn't Cohen's own voice. And that doesn't happen a lot in Cohen's songs. You don't hear a lot of men, other men singing in Cohen's songs. And not only is it a man, but he's singing in Hebrew. And the word that he's singing in Hebrew is Hineni, which is a Hebrew word of great resonance. It means here I am. And it's a word that that is said by most famously by Abraham in the Bible when God is, you know, coming at him with some pretty bad news. He's going to have to sacrifice his son, Isaac. The worst possible news you can get. And what does Abraham say? He says, here I am. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm going to listen to what you say. So it's a word with, with a lot of depth in the Hebrew. And um, that's what the song's about. It's about Cohen's announcement that he's no longer running away. You, know, you mentioned that he said earlier in his life that he spent much of his life escaping from place to place. You know, he goes from Montreal to the village and from the village to Europe and from Europe to Hydra and from Hydra to Israel and from Israel back to Hydra and so forth. And at the end of his life, he announces that, it, that there's no more running away. You know, he says, if, you, if you're the dealer, is it talking to God, as Leonard Cohen said, quite a bit. If you're the dealer, I'm out of the game. And yeah, that's it. Hineni, um, here I am. And that's really the song with which Leonard Cohen leaves us. The, the, the voice belongs to, the voice of the, of the cantor who sings the, the Hebrew word in the song belongs to the cantor at Shara Shamayim, at the synagogue where Leonard Cohen grew up, like Gideon Zellermeyer, who I actually know. And he, he's called by Cohen to come and sing on this album. So when he releases his, this really, what is essentially his last song, Cohen doesn't go back to the village and he doesn't go back to Quebec or he doesn't go back to the Buddhist monastery where he spent many years or to India where he spent some time. He goes back to the synagogue where he grew up and the cantor of the synagogue sings in Hebrew on that song. And when Cohen dies a few months later, he's buried in the cemetery at the synagogue at Char Shamayim in Montreal and he's buried next to his parents. And on his gravestone, you'll see the name that he never changed says Leonard Cohen and in Hebrew Eliezer Cohen so it's quite an amazing end to an incredibly creative life it's a great way to end the interview and I want to end it here on that up note but before we do I want to have sort of a postscript we talked about early on how at age 39 when living in Hydra he says to himself and the world it's time for me to shut up and of course, had he shut up, the songs about which we are speaking and others wouldn't have been written. But most famously, Hallelujah wouldn't have been written had he shut up. And it's a confusing song, but if I, I'd love you to tell the audience what is the story from the book of Samuel and King David and Bathsheba. Can you take us so when the audience at the end of this interview reads your book and says, this was a great book. And they say, oh, by the way, the postscript explains to me finally what he's singing about in Hallelujah. I'd love you to take us out on that. I should recommend a book that's written solely about the story of Hallelujah, which is called The Holy and the Broken. So if you're interested in the quite incredible story about how that song goes from being completely unknown to one of the most ubiquitous pop songs in history, there is a book about it. And the song is released on an album in 1984 that Cohen's label deems not even worth putting out um, an album called Various Positions. The label just says, you know what, this isn't any good. We're not even going to spend money putting this album out. And the album has Hallelujah on it, which is one of the most popular songs in history. So that's one of the ironies of, uh, of Cohen's story. 
but the the first verse of course opens with um with a version of of that story from the book of samuel with cohen riffing on ancient hebrew text as he did of course in the, in the case of who by fire as well and it's david looking out at a jerusalem rooftop where he sees a beautiful woman bathing and the woman is Bacheva, Bathsheba, and he falls in love with her and if we know that the continuation of the story we understand that what david is going to do is send her husband uh Uriah, he's going to send him off to die in a war so that he can have his wife and it's you know kind of the sin that leads to the unraveling of david's own family and it's an incredibly potent story and and Cohen, you know, introduces it to us in classic Cohen fashion with a bit of humor um, in this unforgettable song. That's David, the, the, the musician king. David was a poet and a musician, and he had a secret chord that he played to please the Lord. And that's how Cohen goes into that kind of immortal song that um, you know, has been covered, I think, 300 times or something like that. You know, I think perhaps tied with that is... Highway 61 revisited, where Dylan says, where God says to Abraham, kill me a son. And Dylan says, man, you must be putting me on. And God says, no. And Abe says, what? And God says, you can do, Abe, what you want. But the next time you see me, you better run. So you've got Cohen riffing on the book of Samuel and King David and seeing Bathsheba and Bob Dylan on the terrible story of Abraham and Isaac. There's a lesson in there's a lesson in there, which is maybe not um, you know not popular anymore. But the truth is that to write anything worthwhile, you have to know the Bible. I think we'll leave it at that. On the eve of Pesach, we take this as a to do. The book is Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen in the Sinai. Maddie Friedman, we're grateful to you for spending this time with us and for writing this book. It was so informative and such a fun read. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.